Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, yet again, are two academics from actual, measurable institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee, and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Bob and Ray Institute's Skybox at the Hoople Valley Velodrome, Hoople County's premier bicycle racing venue. Today we're using the discovery of a Phoenician cemetery in Spain as a jumping-off point to talk about, well, the Phoenicians. Who were these people, and more to the point, who did they think they were? We call them Phoenicians thanks to the Greeks, but were they really just seagoing Iron Age coastal Canaanites from a bunch of different city-states? Does it even matter what they called themselves, especially at this late date? And while we're asking questions, why didn't Iron Age people from the southern Levant take to the sea? How do you get an elephant over the Alps? And what about, um child sacrifice okay so here's the here's the uh the lightning round and uh it will become clear in the fullness of time how psychologically revealing and also how um how apropos it is what do you call the metal kitchen foil that you use and why Call it tinfoil because I grew up in a house where it was called tinfoil. I called it silver paper because I grew up in a house where silver it was paper. called silver Whoa. paper. <laughs> wow. I had forgotten about that. But, but I, I do realize that the rest of the world calls it tinfoil. Well, I don't know what the rest of the world calls it. I, I think I called it aluminum foil. Okay. But, uh, I, I was always partial to aluminium foil, <laughs> but there was no, there's no justification for that. Not unless you grew up like in London. Yeah, that was always a mouthful. Yeah. Well, but the question is then, what's it, what's in a name? Oh, <laughs> that's where you're going with this. There we go. <laughs> yeah, pretty really transparent. No Clever as a fox. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> That's uh, that's my reputation. You're a but... regular black adder. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of my cunning plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so cunning, if it had if it had a tail, it would be a ferret. <laughs> <laughs> so why do we call things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've lost Doctor Hallett already. <laughs> we really should do this as a as a as a video thing. Yeah, no, oh, she's gone. She's taking it. No, definitely, I do not want to be on video. I can tell you that. She does look a little more composed now. I'm, I'm trying. I had to mute myself for a minute, but I'm trying. Um, tell me okay. if you hear a lot of noise. They're actually building 
they've actually taken apart the railroad tracks outside of my building and they're rebuilding new ones. So if you hear a lot of ambient noise, let me know. Okay. That sounds very interesting, actually. I'd like a picture of that. We'll be posting it on our website for 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 our listeners' uh, edification and amusement. Okay, so tell tell us what you think about what's in a name. Well, so let's back up. <laughs> so if we can back up any further, um, the the whole this whole sorted get together was prompted by uh, the. Uh, an article that uh, one of us saw about a new fifth century burial site in Spain. BC. That, BC. Yeah. BC. BC. Or BCE as we Correct. like to. Um, that was attributed to the Phoenicians. And uh, it wasn't a terribly informative article. looks like a fabulous, interesting site, some burial cysts and chambers and whatnot and that has similarities to other places in spain and in algeria or some such place sardinia sardinia Sardinia. got a staircase in it yeah and it you know looks like a cool little cool big site but the question is who are these people and why is this phoenician and just who are the phoenicians in the first place so, so okay. now after 20 minutes of jibber-jabber, we get to the point. Who so the are, point, <laughs> well, are these Phoenicians? Yeah. So the I mean, point is, should, what's in a name? What's, what's in a name? name? We should say that this article didn't give us as much information as we like when we're talking about archaeological <laughs> finds. Um, it mentions burial vaults. It mentions a staircase and it mentions atrium areas. So we don't really know what the excavators are describing when they describe this to the media. Um, which... Yeah, but that's, again, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that it was called Phoenician. Well, that is the point, but I, I'd like to know why specifically they're calling it Phoenician. And I just don't see that kind of information in this little article. As opposed Phoenician to mid-century cells. modern. <laughs> because Phine- it's all about marketing and Phoenician cells. Okay. It? And it does. But why wasn't it called Punic? <laughs> well, look. If you have a chance, if you have, again, I'm speaking as the marketing department, if you have a choice between Punic and Phoenicians, I'm going to say we're going with Phoenicians. Phoenicians have a, have that hoary air of antiquity. Phoenicians have, you know, a much kind of that whole ancient flying the, flying the, the seas. Lighting across the Mediterranean in their, in their boats and stuff well what's so here's an interesting question what's in a name is when what what uh, what does the word phoenician conjure up versus the word punic no (laughs) (laughs) hold up these flashcards well because punic 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 is uh i think of um obviously carthage and elephants crossing the alps Right. right and uh and a guy, what was his name? Hamilcar? <laughs> Hamilcar Barca? And, and his son. And his son. Um, and I, you know, then I start thinking about crossing the Alps with some elephants. Right. And then the Punic Wars and ultimately losing some Punic Wars and Carthage being destroyed. Right. So I guess from a marketing standpoint, it's not such a favorable brand. So is Phoenicia a better brand because of all the things you guys were saying a moment ago? 
I guess I, colonists, I so. explorers. I, yeah. Out right. there on the water. Right. The promise of God knows what, the promise of far-flung places. But but it, but it's interesting that you bring up crossing the Alps. Because uh, one of the one of my favorite movies starring one of my favorite actors is uh, is based it stars Michael J. Pollard and it's called Hannibal Brooks. And it's some kind of wacky, you know, wacky World War II movie mm. where they had to cross the Alps with a circus filled with, filled with elephants. And, I, and whenever it came out, that was sort of my first exposure to things Punic. Hmm. And, and really my only actual <laughs> exposure, because, you know, I always felt like all that stuff was so late we have, we know too much about it. Right. When in fact, we know almost nothing about it. <laughs> well, there's there. Well, I mean, speaking for speaking for myself, but well, you can speak for me. <laughs> no, I've learned from experience not to do that. <laughs> well, it, but that, but that's the thing it, as, as opposed to other periods where we, where we know very little and we talk a lot here. We, we know a lot in the archeological sense, but the, and the historical sense, but some of the fundamental things like who are these people and what did they think of themselves um, are, are really quite mysterious. We call them Phoenicians, but they didn't use that word. Right. We create this category. We think that there's this ethnic and political and social concept called Phoenicians. And maybe there was sort of, kind of, but it's not, it's not necessarily what they thought of themselves. And right. that's, that's one of the most interesting things about this as, you know, people with people with, with no names who are just going out <laughs> all around the Mediterranean, setting up colonies hither hither and yon right and well but, but so, they did have an identity so well this, they did that's they did. the thing right this yeah. is the first thing this uh this this notion that they had no identities is everybody there's always an identity whether we can recognize it or not but you know i think that there's been enough work done on uh on on you know human psychology and the organization of society etc that identity is something central to the to the human experience, but their identity seems to be based on city-states or on their state uh, city affiliation, which is so yeah. typical of the Near East. I mean, Mesopotamian right. identity up until what, the, the Neo-Assyrian period, maybe the Middle Assyrian period was based on city identity. All throughout the Levant, all of these kingdoms, it's based on city identity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why wouldn't we expect city identity to be the major category for any group, but certainly a Canaanite group from Iron Age, from the Iron Age Levant. Right, I think that's that's kind of the key, the city identity as opposed to ethno-national identity. I think that's really the key, but also, you know, it depends on what century we're talking about. By the time there's a colony in Carthage and it's well-established, um, they are aware of their place of origin. So their identity as people from far away from the 
coast of northern Canaan, Lebanon, whatever we're going to call it, and that's the problem, uh, is, uh, you know, they, they know where they're from. So they have an identity based on the region by the time we get to, oh, I don't know, the Punic Wars. Or right. Well, they do. We They know who they were, but it was everybody else who, who came up with this name, Phoenician. Yeah. And, and that's, that's sort of the, the interesting part, you know, the Homer and Herodotus and Euripides and the Bible and and Thucydides and, and my, and my favorite um, pseudo Skylax (laughs) (laughs) apparently got into some kind of beef with real Skylax and had to adopt this other name. Right. Um, Um, but they just called themselves the Carthaginian or the Sidonian or the Tyrian right? or the guy of Salamis or whatever other, you know, place that they're from in this very traditional bronze age kind of city state pattern. Right. Yeah. And I don't think you should lump the Bible in there because the Bible referred to them by, by city also tire. Right. Sidon. Right. Higher and tire. Yeah. Right. But the, the term Phoenician does come up. Okay. Right? I think so. In the Bible? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, call, call us. <laughs> Our lines are open now. <laughs> um, well, so, so the question, there are many questions. Um, are we creating something that didn't exist by by? having this concept of Phoenicians and then, you know, Punic people, the, the sort of Carthaginian and to the West extension of, of these, of these folks, or are we lumping splitting? Right. I don't, I don't think we ever, I don't think we ever invent things out of whole cloth. There certainly was this group of people, however we want to phrase them and call them. And over time we've come to call them Phoenicians because that, that um, that name was given to them or referred to them by right. Greeks, right? And right. it captured the imagination of of you know Western scholarship at some point, and it continues in usage today. And it would seem pretty weird to start referring to them as Sidonians and Tyrians and Carthaginians because because it, Phoenician is so well ensconced in the in the um, in our you know, in the terminology. Right. That's true. That's true. And, and it's the same thing with, with, well, the term Canaanite, where we shouldn't be using the term Canaanite for bronze age people, even though the Bible uses that term, the Bible also divides them into subgroups, but there were no Canaanites who thought of themselves as Canaanites. They were, they were, I don't know, Hatzorites, Gezerites, whatever. Right. Um, right. And this is just the Northern extension of this being lumped Right, and, and part of it is the difference between a political designation and a cultural designation. And in generally in our terminology and in our desire to communicate quickly and effectively, we don't make that designation clear because it would, you know, it would sound so contrived and you know, it wouldn't really be communicating effectively. Right. So there's that element to it. But, um, but so, it, what's interesting, I, okay, a couple of things is why, and this we just don't know from the articles in the press, is why they're calling this, these set of tombs, 
Phoenician. We can suggest why, because yeah. they're well-built uh, uh, tombs that probably have, you know, comparable examples from elsewhere in the Phoenician world. Um, and, you know, they're, we know a lot about Phoenician burials and tomb types. Right. So maybe that's part of the reason. Um, but I understand your question, Alex. Why would we want to call them Phoenician even to begin with? Um, when we can be either more specific or more precise in either a cultural or political way. And I su suspect it's just, a, you know, um, it's just a, a shortened version of what we want to be talking about. Well, uh, there, there's another way to approach this, which is, which is sideways, which is archaeologically. Uh, and to first ask, is there, is there a set of material culture attributes from a place and time that have a, you know, a series of that are integrated in some way that represent a culture or, you know, an interaction sphere, or any one of these other weaselly words that uh, archaeologists <laughs> tend to coine. Um, and, and yeah, there, there kind of is, you've got, you know, particular kinds of uh, pottery, these black on red juglets and the red slipping and the, the, the jugs with the fancy trefoil uh, rims and you know yeah but let's be clear what time period and what right at the beginning of the iron the beginning of the first millennium right the first right. centuries so in the, these uh, coastal sites in in lebanon right and and, and other south also <laughs> and, and neighboring countries right <laughs> and so yeah they're whatever they called themselves uh they were sharing material culture ideas and they were building things the same way. And, oh, by the way, they were using a similar alphabet. And, by the way, they started writing stuff like crazy. Um, long inscriptions and royal, ins eventually royal inscriptions a few centuries later. So, so, yeah, there's a kind of thing. But how is that thing organized? Is it city-states? Is there one giant kingdom? Well, we know it's not one giant kingdom. And again, I think, I think the split is there's one way to talk about them culturally and a different way to talk about them politically. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and politically, socially also. Do one of, does one of you want to talk about the Murex shell to just define the term? It's a shell. Apparently not. <laughs> it's, it's from it a Murex. It takes a lot of Murex shells to make a little bit of dye. Right. right. So, so apparently um, the term... Phoenicia and the term Canaan both refer to this red dye uh, that comes from crushed up uh, shells of the Murex mollusk. That's hard to say, uh, and um, and the which was a big commodity coming out of the land that later came to be referred to as Phoenicia. Um, but this this um, you know you. you you use the term Canaan in whatever form it is, Kinahi, and then the Greeks call it uh, Phoenix. So um, that's, I just want to get that out there, that terminologically um, we have, we, we are basically coming from, um, from a commodity uh, and that got associated with the region and then the people were associated there. 
Is that too didactic? No, I mean, you know. I mean, I just wanted to get that out there um, (laughs) in case, you know, a listener. For all your students out there who are. Yeah, well, exactly. Who are doing doing research. um, Well, this is the part that students are always interested in. Um, Really? Yeah, I find that, that, uh, you know, when you're trying to define who the Phoenicians are, and when I just say, JP, what you were saying is that they're they're basically just city states in northern yeah. Canaan, southern Lebanon. But it's not like this, the economies of these city states are based on purple dye. Well, that we don't know. So there's a big deal made about the purple dye, and as right. we already discussed in our in our look at Timna, there's some kind of uh, nomadic elite who seems to have a little bit of of dye of some sort on his royal flaxen garment or whatever it is. And so, I I mean, you know, there are these big economic engines that drive these city states, whether it's olive oil or wine or grains. And, you know, I don't think one can downplay the economic uh, um, importance of something as prestigious and hard to produce as, you know, uh, indigo. Okay, that's fine, but you know, a, a where's where's the evidence for mass production at scale, as opposed to what we do have, which is a lot of l- much larger jars, which right. had to have contained the usual commodities, wine and oil, um, or and maybe grain and other things. Although they're not growing a lot of grain in Phoenicia per se, and. Uh, you know, I think maybe we're just making too much of this whole purple business. But it's scalar because, you know, you can look at the production of incense in the Arabian Peninsula, which, you know, resituated the Babylonian capital from Babylon all the way into the middle of, of, uh, okay, of the Arabian that, Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And that's very small quantities of very, very prestigious stuff that's driving a huge, you know, a huge economic foundation for the Near East in the seventh and sixth centuries, if not eighth, seventh and sixth centuries. So I don't think this, I think the scale or issue is a little different if it's such a prestigious, you know, commodity. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, One thing that I'll say that contradicts what we've been saying, I guess, is- um, (laughs) We never do that. (laughs) I've always thought that it's kind of nice to have this um, little influx of the Near East into the Western world. Like, what do we think of with Phoenician? Oh, the alphabet, bringing the alphabet with their trade all the way to the West and creating the Greek alphabet and blah, blah. So I kind of like that um, this kind of myth about the Phoenicians has at least over the last, I don't know, 200 years, solidified the place of the Near Eastern people in in the um, mythology of of the well but it's it's way 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 before that it's it it's it's homer among other things okay it's at least herodotus yeah they're they're talking about phoenicians going here and there and phoenicians establishing cities and phoenicians teaching local people all sorts of different things uh what we don't have are either the Phoenicians' own uh, <laughs> version of, of this, yeah. and certainly there's no Phoenician national literature, um, which, you know, which is a big, uh, a big void. But we also don't fun. have... What? That would be fun to find some Phoenician national literature. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be fun to find some, I don't know, Moabite 
national literature uh, beyond one inscription or so. Yeah. But there, we also have no idea what the locals um, thought of this. You know, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're a, a Sicilian uh, merrily going about his or her own business. And then one day the Phoenicians arrive and, and then the next day the Greeks arrive and all of a sudden your, your island has been colonized. And, and now we're morphing into modern European history. Well, it's modern world. It, it's modern world history. Everybody's, right. Well, I mean, all the attendant issues of that. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, everybody's colonizing everybody else when right. they find, when they finally can get it together to do so. Right. It's a settler. It's a settler uh, uh, society. Mm-hmm. And, right. And and the dif- the difference, the distance, both cognitively and spatially and temporally between Sidon and Tyre and Carthage, is immense. Yeah. Because whatever their uh, known Canaanite origins were to a, to a, a fourth or a third century Carthaginian, it didn't matter anymore. Carthage was its own kind of place, its own Absolutely. kind of society, its own identity. And while it's purportedly Phoenician, and it certainly is, it's not purportedly, it, it's, a, it's such a different kind of Phoenician right. that it doesn't really matter anymore. Because it's it's just much different than you know anything that it came from, and right. I think ultimately the same thing that can be said about all these Spanish sites. Um, because one thing that we're missing, and that of course we would love to have, uh, other than you know a very kind of enigmatic reference in the Hebrew Bible, is we'd like to see a lot of good evidence for not just trade and exchange between Phoenicia and the Levant, not just the notion that there must have been, you know, Phoenician silver, maybe tin coming Mm -hmm. into the Levant, but some kind of systematic interaction and trade interaction exchange that was um, deliberate and well-established and stable. And we don't have that at all. Except maybe for metal. Right, but yes, but it's maybe from metal, but we don't silver really have and, it. We just silver and tin coming right, from someplace. This, right, but it's notional. It's just notional that we have a reference and we know that there's silver and tin, and therefore, ergo, we must assume that the biblical reference and the fact that there is silver and tin means that there's some kind of trade and exchange. But it's completely speculative and notional, and it's certainly not deeply. Um, embedded within the economies of the Mediterranean writ large in the ninth and tenth, ninth, eighth centuries. Not, not that, not that early, or but... even later, even in the sixth century. Well, um, the here I have to say that the that the boffins are 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 added again. That uh, you know analyses of uh, of silver of lead isotopes in mm-hmm. silver are beginning to show that the phoenicians are bringing silver to the levant from southwest sardinia right in mm-hmm. in the 10th 9th centuries and that this may be one of the triggers for colonization right but what i'm saying is we don't have enough evidence and there's certainly no textual evidence to suggest that it is of a systematic and deeply embedded nature. That's what I'm saying. That when something reaches a scalar level, 
um, of significance, there has to be, there, there should be some kind of either archeological or textual um, uh, clues that support that. So we've got this kind of intertextual period, maybe is what <laughs> you're saying. Intertextual. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> like, like you do like between the Bible and the Talmud, you have um, a period where things are getting solidified, but you don't have the written evidence for, and then it shows up as a full-fledged thing. Um, once right, but it should also be pointed out there's, there's something like 10,000 Phoenician inscriptions from around the, the Mediterranean. Right. What, what are the dates of these 10,000 Phoenician inscriptions? Well, from the first millennium. Um, right. But they're, they're all... Later, though. They're all later, but they're all dedicatory inscriptions. Right. And, and they're funerary. And funerary, and they're brief, and they don't... They don't, they don't talk about commerce. They right. don't talk about politics right. as such. Um, and there's a huge, uh, there's a huge uh, neo-Assyrian, relevant neo-Assyrian literature because they're out, you know, imperially dominating all these places right. as right. well. True too. Um, not all these places, uh, the, the Mediterranean coast. <laughs> right. And we know yeah. that olive oil is, is being cir is is, circulating. Is in one the of the drivers. Right. But we right. don't have any, I mean, if we didn't have Mikne, right. Yeah. And we didn't have 115 olive press installations with, with millions of, of identical jars. So in the case of olive oil, we have that archeological evidence. Right. that we can talk about a systemic, you know, world, you know, system in, in the Eastern, if not entire Mediterranean, but we don't have that for anything else. Well, there's a, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that metal metals was, was one of the commodities that they were out there looking for. And, yes. and certainly in the, but you know what, Alex, you can say that, about every about you can say that mm. about metal for planet earth since right you know well, right so that's right so that's something that never needs to actually be said it, <laughs> it, it, but if we don't say it <laughs> no, because people it forget it because no one's going to forget okay. that people are always searching for metal and we continue to search for metal yeah but it's different in the first millennium because you have you have the the beginning of a real of a real um, multi-metallic economy. <laughs> That's a good word. That's a good word. Yeah, but it's no different than it's no different than the Ubaid and the Uruk expansion, in which you have coherent polities looking for metal and doing whatever it takes to find metal and pushing out behind beyond their comfort zone. Right, but by the metal. but by the middle of the of the first millennium, you have coins. Well, okay. Well, that's true. But you before have, that, you, you had hacksaw. But before that, you had hacksaw. I mean, these are right. Yeah, systems. yeah, yeah. And I don't. I'm not dismissing that. Don't dismiss the metal. I'm don't not dismissing metal. any metal. But you know what? Metal can ones. also be melted down and reused, recycled. Well, that, and that's the problem, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I'm not dismissing that it exists. That people are, are any anywhere there's silver, people are trying to get at get it and trade for it. I'm just dismissing. What I'm dismissing is. Um, how significant and systematic that Spanish silver to the Levant is because we have only the, 
you know, we only have very little evidence for it. So why did there the could be silver anywhere? There could be, you know, there's silver in the Amanos. There's silver here. There's silver there. So, you know, it's a pretty, I think that the silver market, I think all of these metal markets were very opportunistic. Wherever the metal comes from, they're getting it. And um, to think of it as a big, well-established systemic um, industry is, is, a, is very different, unlike olive oil. Where we okay. have these okay, but you can't just I don't disagree with any of that, but you can't dismiss the trade. You can just <laughs> discuss the the sort of scale of the trade and the system, systematization of the trade. Um, well, I, yes, you're right. Yeah, and that right. that brings us back to what we were talking about when we were talking about uh, shipwreck a week or two ago, an episode or two ago. That uh, you know they'll get they'll get products from wherever and they'll take it to wherever, and that was a very different time frame. Um, and uh, I feel like we're back to the same thing, though. It always comes back to the same thing. <laughs> I guess so. But why is, okay, but why did, then why did the, the Phoenicians move? Why, why did they, get, why, well, why not just stay home? Why, why colonize the entire Central and Western Mediterranean and the Atlantic coast, if not in search of raw materials and, and to create new markets or to dispose yeah. of excess population. They have mountains. That, they're up against mountains. They look, they're looking west. You'd have to, be, you'd have to be more slothful than you and I combined to not say, hey, maybe we should get on a boat and head west. It could be promising. Plus, I mean, you know. That would be very slothful. They're... <laughs> <laughs> They're hemmed in by the Assyrians who are on the move, and maybe they're looking for more opportunities. Right, but but and and this is and this is the point, is that um, <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally we get to the point. It's fi finally in, in our sixth hour of this discussion. <laughs> yeah, really. Talk about Talmudic. <laughs> it's like the the Lincoln Douglas debates. Um, and now I've forgotten it. <laughs> No, the point the point is that there's something there's something cultural going on here that, that there is something particular to this culture of of the central the central eastern mediterranean coast um that it's it's hemmed in it's restless and it just decides to go west young man as opposed to, let's say, uh, the folks from the Southern Levant who show very little interest in building ships and, and, and taking off. Well, that's, yeah, that's a good point. That's um, a good comparison. And, you know, maybe, maybe there is some kind of, well, obviously there's a long tradition on the, in the, the, the central Levant the Northern Levant of getting on ships and going because you have these mountains and it feels I'm all penned in. I got to get out of here. And you got I, more significant port cities in the North than you do in the South. Maybe right. And you have, and you have people who are coming to you all the time, coming and going, coming and going. Right. Plus, right. if you want to get into, to, you know, geographical geography is just the deterministic. Right. Well, yeah, no, I was going to talk about the, the small geographic areas of the Southern Levant and, and, you know, just tiny little polities as opposed to maybe a slightly more unified culture in the northern coast. But okay, so let me let me try this out on you. You talked okay. about a, a literature. Why isn't the why aren't the Ugaritic texts considered foundational material? 
for Phoenician city-state culture. So the Phoenicians inherited all of the DNA, both you yeah. know, hardwired and softwired, from places like Ugarit, which yeah. was the Canaanite entre trading entrepot par excellence. Right. And, and so all of that was passed down, right? So what, there's no direct connective tissue from Ugarit to the Iron Age, but there, we know that there are lots of sites in the Northern Levant, both on the coast and inland, that uh, continue or are built up in the Iron Age one and continue into the Iron Age two. And so trade is hardwired into this, into the economy, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. And I would also suggest though we, we just don't have the texts that, you know, there's no reason why we can't consider Ugaritic material as, you know, foundational to coastal Iron Age coastal Canaanites who we happen to refer to as Phoenicians. I agree 100%. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's all the same characters. It's, it's uh, El, it's Baal, it's... Right. Uh, Right, Astarte you know, and Astarte, Anat, all, all these right. uh, gods and goddesses uh, whom we know very, very well from, from Ugarit and who and, are, you know, uh, later on kind of reflected in, in a negative way in, in the Bible. So, so these, these so-called Phoenicians are, are just uh, Iron Age Canaanites. Same, right. same mythology, right. same, same impulses, same <laughs> right. need, <laughs> needs that's, and desires. That, that and sounds they, a little salacious, but. <laughs> well, I, you know, I use that in the best possible sense. <laughs> and they did bring their religion with them um, over to the West. Uh, you know, this is why we're talking about all these funerary um, steely. And I'm afraid to mention it because you guys more or less told oh, me Oh, here to. we go. You've been waiting to mention this all yeah. day. I, Rachel, you've yeah. been waiting to mention this for weeks now. <laughs> Don't deny it. You've I been will waiting for your say, opportunity. I will say the word Tophet and, uh, and go from there. Um, and you say know, the you, two words that you really want to say. The two words? Yes. Besides Tophet, what's the other word? <laughs> Child sacrifice. <laughs> right. Rhymes right. with okay, mild. Right, right, right. So I was. I was Everybody take a drink. <laughs> so um, yeah. So so the Bible mentions you know the terrible Canaanite practice of child sacrifice to to Moloch, and um, so so we've got this you know in the Bible as one source, and then we've got these um, places that have been called Tophets in. Uh, so-called Phoenician cities in the West, including Carthage, uh, where we definitely have child cremation burials. So let's, you know, scholars have played hard and fast with the connection between these two, two things. And they probably, there probably is a connection. Religion does travel a long way, it morphs, but it doesn't, um, it's one of the last things in burial practices in general. I'm not saying child sacrifice per se, but burial practices in general are one of the last things to change and do tend to come along when peoples migrate. That's all I'm gonna say. You wanna say more though. <laughs> you wanna talk about child sacrifice and all of its gory details. I can I only say enough that about it. I've, I've excavated enough MB2 jar burials with, with children in it, Tim. Right. To well, that I've done, off the yes. whole topic. Right, 
that 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 is a good other topic but right and that's not sacrifice at all but no exactly it is children being buried correct correct <laughs> let's all let's point out that there is a huge difference between burying children and sacrificing, sacrificing them right and and, and we do not endorse bur- burying children you know <laughs> no, unless absolutely necessary no store jars were harmed in the making of this <laughs> podcast <laughs> I'm I'm done. Well, so what do you want to say about it, though? Yeah, they they did it. And this was a this was a particular, peculiar, slightly (laughs) distressing um, cultural attribute where they seem to sacrifice, sacrifice children or. I mean, if infanticide was not unheard of in in, well, the pre-modern world. It's not so. Yeah. okay, But it, it, it does seem to stand out for 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 these guys yeah and it's one of the ways along with cremation burials iron age cremation burials it's one of their one of their attributes of phoenicians punic culture and so on right so so this is something that we could link from from i don't know biblical mythologies onwards to tophets found in phoenician identified sites in the west um, my, my only point was that religion does tend to travel. Um, right, right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, religion definitely travels. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we know this and, from the- right. and, and we know their language traveled, right? Because we had all these inscriptions in Canaanite, and gotten names of Canaanite right. gods. And, and their writing system right. traveled. Uh, it, it may have been, <clears throat> it, it was certainly transmitted to the West um, to the Greek world, Cyprus, the Greek mainland, right? Early-ish in the in the first millennium, or even the end of the second millennium. So, so that was good. Diffusion for or against? <laughs> um, <clears throat> Okay, I want to get back to this issue about motivation because Please. this is a this is a really interesting topic. It's also a topic on which archaeology cannot ever, I don't think, um, intelligently in, <laughs> provide any really information on. Right. Um, but it's something that archaeologists and historians always talk about. Um, and uh, Alex, you brought up the question of why why go why go west, and we sort of dismissed it in in you know the very in a very pedestrian kind of way. pedestrian and glib matter yeah exactly pedestrian and glib are my middle names so um you know there's you know there's certainly a, a geographic determinism involved there but um let's maybe do a little comparative world history here and compare phoenician migrations or movements to polynesian ones so mm-hmm. one of the you know and polynesian is a completely proto-historic you know uh uh non-literate society um and and these were one-way voyages for the polynesians probably though that's still debated but one of the big motivations suggested for the polynesian migrations which is which are massive which are unbelievable that the polynesians you know were able to um move across the entire pacific in you know outrigger canoes truly an amazing feat of technology and personal endurance um, is that you have all of these second and third sons of the chief 
mm. who had nothing, who mm. were never right. going to establish their own lineage. And for matters of personal aggrandizement and prestige and emulation of their fathers, and it was patriarchal, um, wanted to start their own lineages. And mm -hmm. so maybe the same kind of motivations are at work for these Polynesian, uh, for these uh, Phoenicians. That's that they want to go off and you know start their own little, um, their own little city state, so that they can be you know at the top of it. And if they had enough wealth and power and prestige and charisma to put together an expedition, why not do it? And and of course the advantage there is a, the Mediterranean was a known quantity. Right, certainly throughout the late Bronze Age, so they knew where they were going. A, B, they knew how to they knew how to support themselves because Canaanite traders have a long history of supporting themselves in Mediterranean, um, uh, you know, moving across the Mediterranean. So there were far fewer unknowns, and there was, you know, uh, commercial potential, yeah. and there was also all sorts of personal um political potential so it seems like a win-win and as you know for any entrepreneurial coastal canaanite and yeah. as to why that didn't go on in the southern part of the southern levant exactly what you said rachel there are far fewer ports yeah. and uh you know many of those ports were philistine ports so they came under a sort of separate socio-economic ideology or you know construct or whatever whatever jargony word you want to use i really like that i think you need to write this motivation argument up i'm just, uh, a, I'm just an idea man <laughs> you, you, you of all people know that he doesn't have that kind of motivation yeah, exactly. <laughs> i'll let alex write the uh, article but, and put my name on the back end but that but that's a great that's a great analogy uh which i never would have thought of polynesia but it also made me think of like you know, second and third sons in the Crusades, they're going, they're going east, they're going to the Holy Land, they're setting up these little kingdoms there. And the same thing, they had nothing going for them where they were. And then it makes me think also of, um, I'm, I'm just adding to your whole motivational argument here, makes me think of, of um, uh, Central Europeans in the 19th century, when the German cities were too crowded, and there was no chance for second and third sons to make anything of themselves, they, they came to the new world. They came to America and settled the Midwest and became, you know, whatever. America. Burgers. Burgers. <laughs> and no, but that's motivation is really, yeah, it's not all just, hey, let's go conquer some land. Um, it's, it's more. Yeah, I, I think, I think a good analogy would be the um, British West Indies company and East Indies company, India company. Mm that, uh, you know, they, they knew there were opportunities out there. Um, <clears throat> they knew that there were resources. There are a bunch of rich guys um, and the children of uh, the children of, of landowners who are sitting around and the innovation presumed innovation there is that it becomes a joint stock company where people put up the money to capitalize the exploration. But I, I always thought that that same kind of stuff was going on in the late bronze age, mm. you know, people, people putting up cash for, for voyages yeah. to, uh, to collect things like valuable commodities, like broken glass on their, on their journeys. 
Um, I do. Actually, another really interesting thing you're saying, and you should write that up. The you know sort of the the details of the commercialization of of international trade in the Bronze and Iron Age, in terms of you know were these companies? Did you buy stock in the companies? I don't know. <laughs> right. The 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 Ugarit company. Right. right. Um, the question is, and um, and I don't disagree with you at all. The question is for historical examples, especially historical examples in, uh, you know, sort of post enlightenment, but particularly in the sort of age of um, the, I, no, I'm not even going to use that term. Oh, use it, um, use it. No, I'm not going to use it. Um, but certainly post, you know, in the 16th century forward is so much in terms of motivation, we know so much more about the motivation of those kinds of people, like, you know, the problems on the class issues on in the British Isles, right. and, you know, and the, and the, and the, um, the invention, it's not the actual invention, but certainly the creation of stock, stock markets. Right. And we know that stock kinds of ideas can even be distilled from the, you know, old Assyrian colony. Right. But yeah. this is, yeah. but this is a, but you, I think you, I think we can all agree that from the, you know, from the 16th century on the notion of stock and, 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 you know, owning parts of companies, especially shipping companies takes a real leap forward in terms of pace, intensity, and scale that is, makes it right. very unlike earlier modern examples. So I don't disagree with you. I just always wonder about the element of sort of presentism in those kinds of arguments, especially mm -hmm. about motivation. And I only say that, I say that for a specific reason. And even though I said in the case of Phoenicia, they understood the Mediterranean much better than the Polynesians had any idea about the Pacific. Mm -hmm. But even though they understood the Mediterranean, I think, you know, I don't think they understood everything about the Mediterranean. Like yeah. they might have thought there were monsters and everything else, like we right. see on maps of various and sundry oceans and seas from, you know, whatever, the 13th century and 14th century, if not earlier, obviously. So um, I think that there was a the degree of unknown was so much bigger than the degree of unknown in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. But I don't disagree with you. I just want to make that little caveat. That's that's fair. Um, I, <laughs> Alex stunned into silence. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, just, just for our audience. Alex is now shifting uncomfortably in his chair. <laughs> I'm telling you, we got to do a video version of this or, yeah, or live performances. On I stage. Well, that I would like to do. I'd like um, to go to that place in Brooklyn. What's it called? The Brooklyn Bowl or something? Or, or the or the something house, the bell house. There's some place in Brooklyn where they do live shows like Judge John Hodgman performs there. I think that would be fun. That would be a good idea. Okay. Let's 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 get right on that. <laughs> um yeah, now I'm stunned into double silence. <laughs> I think we just need a voiceover sort of describing how we're reacting. <laughs> The equivalent of a double stuffed Oreo. <laughs> it was at this point that the, <laughs> that the edibles kicked in. Um, um, yeah, well, the Mediterranean is a closed, it's a closed system in a sense. And certainly from the second millennium onward, there were, there was 
there were people, there were goods, and there was information circulating around at a relatively low, lower scale. And, and this picked up dramatically in, in the first millennium, thanks in, in no small part to our friends, the, the Phoenicians, also to the Greeks who c- created their own competing right. systems yeah. of colonies, their own competing systems of, of uh, economies and movements. Right. Um, and these guys are grinding against each other and eventually contributing to the rise of, you know, the, the Etruscans and, and, and the Romans Ultimately. who became the, uh, the ultimate 800 pound gorillas. All roads um, do lead to Rome. Uh, all, all roads, unless you're Sasanian, in which in which case they lead to Iran. Yeah. <laughs> well, but that. <clears throat> See, you you we need a, we need a little feckless silliness here. Your japes have, have, have flummoxed me into into a metaphysical silence. Um, I, I just want to repeat that I really do like the concept of you know why why do we. We, we shouldn't just why do we go anywhere and do anything well okay. uh, that's a bad example because i don't go anywhere or do anything so i'm a you know well i guess not, none of us do why do we dismiss I, I agree with you about being careful about presentism but on the other hand you know let's not think that they were not sophisticated enough in the sure. let's say later iron age to think about partial ownership of of companies no you're think, right and I they were done Right. It's just an interesting approach to ancient commercial endeavors that I've never really considered before. And I like right. considering and, it. And the question always, always gets down to for archaeologists, are you a minimalist or a maximalist? Given, uh, given a kernel of data, do you push yeah. it? You know, do you pull it? How far do you pull it until it starts to sag under its own weight? Right. It's sort of the Bonomo Taffy model, right? You take a little piece of information and you pull and you pull and you pull. And when do you stop pulling? Right. And, you know, given, given the issue, I think we're all pretty, you know, we all assess things differently. Sometimes we'll take a little piece of information and pull it until it's completely disproportionate. Mm-hmm. And other times we only extend it, you know, very, you know, in very small ways. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, right. But that's I, the interesting thing about this, this, certainly the earlier part of the, of the first millennium. The first two, three, four centuries, because by those, by the middle of the of the millennium, you know what's going on. You have these giant colonies; they're all over the place. They have attenuated contacts, cultural contacts, or relationships with their homeland, but their commercial contacts every which way, right. and um, and they're also what- embedded within an imperial system. And I don't want to get into value judgments of imperial systems, but one of the advantages of imperial systems is that they create huge free trade zones. Mm-hmm. And so you have this maybe a confluence between colonies and the kinds of economic issues that you just raised and empire as you know being mm. part of a positive feedback loop. That's interesting. Well, Final thoughts. My thought is, I think you two have some serious article writing to, to do. <laughs> yeah, well, you've only known me for 30, 30 plus years. You know that neither serious nor article writing is in my lexicon. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well then, Alex, it's all on you. <laughs> yeah, I. I'm going to take a nap first <laughs> and think and think about it. Um, uh, final thoughts: We should be not using the term Phoenician. We should be using the term Canaanite. We should be calling them coastal Canaanites or Iron Age Canaanites. Western Canaanites. Western Canaanites. Eastern Canaanites. Canaanites. We should just get rid of Phoenician and go back to Canaanites. Uh, and then in, in particular cases like Carthage, they're just Carthaginians. Yeah. Why, why should we be buying into the, into the Greco-Roman worldview and calling right. these people Phoenicians when they're right. just... They're exactly. just they're just Canaanites. Canaanites on on the loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, like that Clint Eastwood movie where he te teams up with an orangutan. That's right. <laughs> Every which way but loose. Right. And you know, you're right, because that Greco-Roman viewpoint is the, you know, sort of foundation for the Western right. you know, yeah. perspective, yeah. which we all are, yeah, there's no point in anything Western or perspective-wise. So right. Coastal Canaanites, the CCs. There we go. That's it. I, I can't beat any of those final thoughts, so I, I, I won't even try. Okay. Okay. All right. There we go. And we're done. Re no, we're not done recording. Crap. Um, you guys oh, no. still there? Oh, my God. <laughs> this is out live. Well, that episode has me thinking about taking to the open sea on a voyage of adventure and profit, the wind in my hair. But in lieu of that, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our longtime sponsor, Gimbel's Department Store, the only place in Hoople to get poached Fabergé eggs. Look for them in the jewelry department and at the lunch counter. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Or send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, as you well know, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134. <laughs>